Hello, and welcome to Disrupting the Degree, the education marketing podcast. I'm Stephen Cleary from Carnival Content with Zina Fires and Zainab Fires from The Brand Education. This podcast is all about higher education with industry trends, experts, and practical ideas across the student experience, brand, and marketing. In this episode of Disrupting the Degree, we're joined by Angela Sexton, Head of Marketing Innovation and Development at the University of London and former Head of Marketing and Communications for the British Council, We'll be discussing marketing, non-campus-based provision, international recruitment and big tech in HE. Welcome to the podcast, Angela. Hi there. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I, I probably should say to our listeners, the reason that I have invited you on, not just because you have a, an amazing career in higher education, but because when I was watching just before the Heist Awards, the CIM conference that you were presenting there and actually mentioned our episode with Facebook. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> thanks, Angela. thanks, Angela. It was great to have you in the audience. Uh, I would have said more if I'd realised that you were there. <laughs> I was listening. I was like, oh, this is really good. And I was like, oh, wow, actually, they're talking about us. So um, I'm, I'm pleased <laughs> that uh, people actually listen. So thank you. We got really happy when Stephen sent over a text. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you know, I'm I'm a fan of uh, disrupting the degree, and I've been listening to all the episodes. So amazing to have you on! Thank you. It's great. Thanks. Angela. So we'll start off then. Can you explain why the University of London is different to traditional UK universities? I certainly can, and it's a even though I often explain this to many agencies, etc., that I work with, I think it still takes people a little bit of time to get their head around the fact that we're not a traditional university with certainly on-campus provision in the same way. Uh, And that's because the University of London is a federation of 17 institutions, London-based, that include UCL, LSE, Kings and Queen Mary, amongst many others. And we provide a a wide range of online and distance learning programmes and have been doing so for a very long time. Uh, Currently, we've got about 48,000 students studying with us in over 119 countries and our kind of aim really is to bring world-class faculty to students everywhere in the world regardless of their location and a, a, a really focus of ours is putting kind of learning design at the center of what we do and encouraging our students to be active participants in a global classroom which is obviously what's been talked about a lot during uh, this period of the Mm -hmm. uh, pandemic. What what do you mean by learning design? So because we're talking about online content, we have learning technologists, if you like, that work with our academics when they're developing our courses. And that process has been going on for a very long time. So I think, interestingly, in this, since the pandemic started, where some providers have been looking to go into a kind of quick delivery online. This mm-hmm. is an area we've been working on and thinking about and are constantly looking at how we evolve and um, develop more engaging and interactive learning experiences for our students. But I mean, we the university was founded in the mid-19th century and obviously back in back a long time ago, it was much more about distance learning. But the university has always played a transformative role in higher education, both in terms of admitting students of different genders, race and religion. And we have some really famous alumni um, 
One is Nelson Mandela, who studied law with us during his time in prison. So, you know, we've got yeah a very long history. Um, Mm. But I think that's meant that we're kind of well placed um, to move forward. The other thing I think that's really really important to me is the fact that a lot of our programs offer performance based admission. So that means that if people haven't got necessarily the academic qualifications they would normally need to do an on-campus program with Kings, for example, if they've got the right experience and background, they can sometimes progress on to our programs if by taking modules and passing those before kind of starting the full degree. And that's, I think, a really important point. And it's something that's being discussed a lot now when we're looking at how can we widen access, um, mm-hmm. etc. I suppose everybody's on a different learning journey, aren't they? So modules are quite a good way to level up, I suppose, when taking on the degree. Yes. And also, we we also have quite a lot of uh, short free courses that we deliver through the Coursera platform, which means that if people want to dip into something or try something before going on to that further commitment, because obviously, doing an online degree part-time is a massive commitment and people might be apprehensive about that. So there's an opportunity to kind of dip your toe in a bit before signing up for the kind of full Mm. programme, if you like. Why did you decide to partner with Coursera? Lots of institutions are trying to set up their own online learning. We've linked up with them really because of their reach. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they've got a massive reach and that's increased uh, since the pandemic, particularly in the, the States and around the rest of the world. And you kind of know that you have an interested audience. They want to learn in the way that you're trying to provide yeah. a learning. So you kind of know that there's some interest there already. So you could probably learn from the findings from you know using Coursera. Yes, there's a lot of analytics they have on the kind of learners and the learning journey, etc. That's mm. obviously incredibly useful when you're designing and launching new programs. Can you give us a bit more of an overview into your career so far? Yeah, sure. So I suppose my focus and interest has always been in kind of the area of marketing communication, but very much with an international focus. My kind of pivotal role for me was when I joined Dorling Kindersley, who's a publisher, but at the point where they were looking at interactive media at those, it, it will make me very old to say it was CD-ROMs at that point, mm. and they they had a, a deal with Microsoft. I remember in Carter ninety five though, so don't oh, worry. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was an amazing place to be. My role was sales manager, and that's international rights sales. So taking our CD-ROM products to Frankfurt Book Fair, Beijing Book Fair, and sitting down with publishers and having the discussions about these new interactive products and how they would be relevant or not for their markets. And that was a really interesting experience, really getting feedback straight away from your prototype and testing out, if you like, what you think your USPs are in these uh, markets mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. realising that there's some kind of fundamental things that you hadn't thought through. A good example is we had a, a children's product called Amazing Animals And when I was discussing it with our Scandinavian markets, they said, well, it can't possibly work. Why not? I said, well, they haven't got an elk. Um, (laughs) It can't possibly go down. (laughs) So we can can, um, 
add some extra screens in for, you know, <laughs> the elk and <laughs> any other animals that you think you need. And, and for Japan, uh, we had a science-based product that you needed to free type your answers to win components on a pinball game. But in Japan, it had to be multiple choice, which was a massive product redesign required to make it applicable in that market. So that was a very interesting time, both in terms of really kind of getting that feedback and making sure your products were developed with a kind of really, truly global reach, but taking into account what localization was needed for different marketplaces. But more importantly, working in an incredibly creative environment where it was really the first time that you had designers and editors working with programmers to create a collaborative product that, you know, was engaging and interactive in a way that we hadn't really kind of known before. Following that, I joined Ogilvy and Mather. And again, that was kind of an interesting time where advertising agencies were looking at kind of bringing in the kind of digital element to their offer, but still didn't really understand it very much. So that was quite an interesting period. I really learned a lot seeing market research and insight done very properly and how all of that really feeds into the campaigns that Ogilvy were were developing and also being around some quite informative creatives, one of which quite well known is Rory Sutherland. He's kind of an expert on consumer behavior and trends. So it's very interesting to be in the room with some of those people. And also one of the things that we've been trying to do in our marketing team is make sure that we have the opportunity to showcase creative work. That's something advertising agencies are very good at. We'd have a a Friday afternoon where everyone presented the creative work they'd been doing and had a bit of a drink and a discussion. And that was very energizing and a real great way of seeing the kind of brilliant work being done across across the piece. Mm -hmm. And I think something we don't do enough in the kind of universities, et cetera, when you're perhaps in a small creative team and you're not really sharing with the wider academics, et cetera, and showing this is what we mean when we're talking about this and this is what we've done. It's something we've started to do in our team at the University of London. It's also inspiring for the team themselves as well, though. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's important, isn't it, to step back and say, actually, we're really proud of this work. We've worked really hard on it and um, and get feedback. And I think since we've been doing that, we've been getting some really positive feedback from our academics and, and other teams who we've kind of, you know, drawn a lot of information from and spent a lot of time with. And then they can kind of see that coming to life. And people always love great videos and great creative I think mm-hmm. yes yeah. and then I suppose lastly which was a long a long time I spent at the British Council working in research and innovation in English language teaching I led a team in the Americas region uh, worked a lot on the positioning for the international development work that the British Council does for DFID in the EU and then lastly and kind of sadly really uh, on Erasmus plus in the time time that I was working on Erasmus we were really trying to highlight the benefits of Erasmus to our students and to the UK and the wider world and unfortunately we weren't successful in that endeavour but um, Mm. it was an amazing program to work on. It seems like marketing innovation development's always been quite at the core so 
you were already experienced in running virtual open days, etc. before the pandemic. And how do you effectively market the non-campus based provision? Well, firstly, we do spend quite a lot of time, and I know it's a, a point that some university marketing teams do have research and insight built into their teams, and, and many still don't. We do do quite a lot of research and insight before we launch programmes and build our campaigns. Um, it is a challenge. How do we bring our programmes to life? Um, we tend to do programme overviews, short videos that we use, clips of social, which really try to get over the kind of essence of the program that we're working, that we're trying to um, present. We run regular webinars with the academic lead um, and that kind of, we have a whole email campaign and content marketing around that based on the kind of highlighting the, the core kind of content of the program. Um, we do quite a lot of offer holding conversion activity, which also on some of our kind of flagship programs include one-to-one appointments with the academic lead. Mm-hmm. And we've done some work, but uh, we've been discussing that we need to do more about what does learning online mean in our context. So we have a virtual learning environment and we've we've already produced some kind of demos of that. But we we're looking and discussing about how can we bring the other aspects of the online learning experience to life for our prospective students. I suppose it's really important, isn't it? Because if someone has a brilliant VLE versus a competitor that has quite a poor one, it's it's actually a big decision-making point Mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's understanding what, you know, people are making a a big commitment to sign up to a a degree or postgraduate programme. And so they really want to know what support am I going to get? how much interaction am I going to have? Um, what's the kind of wraparound support? So, you know, it's something we're continually working on and discussing really. And then I think the other side of that is also looking at, we're very much dependent on digital marketing, looking at, perform, you know, how our campaigns are performing, looking at optimising those. We've done a lot of work on that in the last year and looking at getting a better understanding of what engagement we're getting from our prospective students at different times in the recruitment funnel. How long have you been doing the virtual open days for? So that was what I was particularly interested in when I caught up with you. So not as long as you might think. It's about two, two, three years. But still a big advantage to your competitors, I suppose, who weren't doing them. Yeah, yeah. And obviously now it's something that everyone's obviously since the pandemic been talking about. And it's something interesting for um, universities who've traditionally done the kind of on-campus open days, because I think in the future there's potential for both happening. You know, it it enables people that perhaps say, well, I'm going to invest the time and the money to go and visit my first choice. But the other ones, I might just dip into the the virtual open day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm interested to know, actually, so with such a vast and international audience, who is it most well received by? Is it the US or is it, you know, in Scandinavian regions? Yeah, South Asia is a bit very big for us. Um, Mm -hmm. Pakistan in particular, for example, to kind of bring it to life a bit, we have a, a business administration degree with Royal Holloway it's been running for quite a while with that program you can also opt in for 
some support at one of our recognised teaching centres uh, in key cities. And so that is a way of somebody doing uh, a BSc business administration degree from Royal Holloway with an award from the University of London without mm-hmm. leaving Lahore. And that, oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. And that I think, you know, that kind of model is perhaps more interesting for people now going forward. And that's something that we've been offering for a long time. So you don't have to up sticks, pay to live in the UK or, or elsewhere, but you still leave with a prestigious qualification. And interestingly, in some research that we've been doing, it's the fact that you are getting a qualification University of London, you know, with academic direction from UCL or King's, which is really is why people choose us. Yeah. Angela, what are your thoughts on the disruption of big tech like Google, Facebook, LinkedIn moving into higher education? Yeah, an interesting question and something I've been reading about and kind of thinking about quite a bit, particularly since the pandemic. I mentioned the pandemic again. Um, (laughs) It's hard not to. We can't get away from it. (laughs) I know. Well, I hope we are starting to get away from it. um, Hopefully. Um, I think that there's digital transformation of the education sector is really important. And I think that I hope that this last period is really going to accelerate that for the quite long overdue as well very much and I'm not just talking about higher education the education you know schools Mm -hmm. and colleges Mm -hmm. really need quite a lot of help in that area and I've seen that as a parent and seeing what 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 kind of offer my um, secondary school kids get and I've been quite disappointed (laughs) in a lot of ways and that's not uh, any reflection on teachers that's just the way the situation we're in so I'm very keen that the UK uh, you know techs up not just in terms of having the technology available that but that educators have the skills and know how to use it and I think that's that's going to take a little while and I would also say that about academics you know who's had to suddenly take a lecture and bring it online and there's obviously a lot of learning and how do you engage students and and, and your content in an engaging way. In terms of um, big tech, I think there's some interesting questions that Scott Galloway, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's mm-hmm. a ex-Silicon Valley uh, marketing guy. And, you know, he's been producing the whole big tech are going to come in and take over higher education. And, <laughs> Sounds <you> know, scary. <laughs> well, it, it does. Readers. Yeah. And I think he's also been talking about, you know, imagine Apple partnering with, say, the University of Arts and to deliver design courses or Microsoft with Imperial. And there's an element of that that's quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but there's also, as you're kind of insinuating, that it's also quite a scary one as well. Do we want tech coming in and taking over our institutions where we we want to keep our academic credibility um etc and I think there's so there's a school of thought that oh no they're never going to do that either because it's not financially in their interest or they don't want to take on that kind of financial aspect of it um and also that that they may kind of end up really just increasing their involvement through um, non-credit online programs. So I think there's a bit of a debate going on about that. We discussed 
previously, I think, and it was on your podcast, the social media marketing course that that Facebook are doing and, and delivering via Coursera. So I think, again, we may certainly see more of that type of thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think there's there's a role potentially for that. And I think, Stephen, we talked about previously, didn't we, if you're you're looking to go into social media marketing, who might you look for for the training? Well, if Facebook are offering it, you know. (laughs) It's a no-brainer, really, isn't it? (laughs) Um, But equally, you might, you know, it's important to, to, to not, be just forced to work you know you want to get a bigger picture as well so I think there's a bit of a something to think about around that and I think as well I suppose linked to that I very much like the idea and again I'm referencing another one of your podcasts uh with Turrens keep the references coming yeah we look yeah. like you're a regular <laughs> yeah <laughs> which I, it was a really interesting phrase coined I think by the VP there which was pracademics which I'm mm-hmm. very keen on the idea that academics are you know are are out working and they bring in that practice and their contacts Mm -hmm. in industry and that's part of their offer to students and I think in some institutions academics are quite far away from the reality of the the world of employment and I think we need to do quite a lot more to bring that together Yeah. yeah I think um the way that higher education should view tech is like by looking at the landscape like the whole landscape right now, like through COVID has been digital. Like we've been doing everything online. I think collaboratively though. Yeah, like absolutely. Is, yeah. is the way forward on your more traditional courses, working yeah. with Facebook, yeah. Google, Amazon, not all of them, but maybe, um, or having experts from them to teach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to plug the gaps even. If this period is going to be accelerated, you need to bring in uh, the experts to get everybody up to, to speed, really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a collaborative way, I think, can work really well. And, and there's, a lot, there's a lot of debate around how people are learning mm-hmm. because yeah. you know, the, the whole higher education system is like Victorian age, you know, like the, not the higher edge, but the education system in mm-hmm. the UK particularly, you know, like we're still learning the way we used to learn in the 18th century. Like nothing yeah. has changed. I think, yeah. you know, the way we deliver um, our courses and, you know, I think we really, there, there's quite a big rethink I think needed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I think we, I hope that we won't go back to the way we've been doing it, having been through this experience, I think it, you know, uh, really it's needs a big to opportunity. Yeah, isn't it? definitely, yes. definitely. Yeah. People aren't learning as they used to learn. Like they're learning in different ways. Mm-hmm. They are, they have access. You know, there's a lot. Yeah, that- definitely. That's definitely. And I also think that obviously, if you're, you know, a student that that, that started their first year during this time, you haven't got that. Um, lecture hall experience um, I think it's making institutions it's kind of making institutions think about you know what is their offer to students and you know all of that and also it makes the wraparound care that students have very important yes um, absolutely. so I think there is quite a lot of rethinking across a number of areas needed which brings us quite nicely on to, so what does the future look like for the University of London? Well, I think it's very exciting. And obviously for all of us in the sector, it's still challenging. We're, we're all in a very competitive environment. I mean, interestingly, we ran a campaign at the beginning of lockdown over the first kind of three-month period. And that was really to raise awareness of our free 
uh, MOOCs and short courses, and that attracted a massive amount of interest. We had over 12,000 people sign up to hear from us, as well as a significant number of applications and registrations for our other programmes. So as part of that, kind of as a follow-up to that, really, we're now looking, doing some research to get some better understanding of what people want to study, particularly in terms of a short course offer, the length of time they're prepared to spend, and really what credentials do they want to, to, to have at the end of it. So we're doing quite a lot of work on that, thinking about what micro-credentials we might want to provide and the stackable professional accredited courses. We're also, we've got an ambitious schedule of new programme launches, a wide range of postgraduate programmes launching uh, for teaching in October 21. We're doing quite a lot of work looking at our course offering technology and healthcare in particular. I mentioned we've been collaborating with Coursera for uh, quite a while now and looking at, you know, where that might go. Um, and we're looking a lot more. We've got a new VC and a new uh, director of marketing who are looking very much at the University of London brand, what that mm-hmm. means in the context of London, in the context of our future offer. Um, because I've talked a lot about our online offer, but we also have the School of Advanced Study that does a lot of research in the humanities. So we're looking about how we can tell people more about that very interesting and exciting work and and the work that's also going on with other parts of our um, federation like the uh, UCL and uh, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, So it's a very interesting time I think for us and uh, some great opportunities ahead I think. Certainly keeping us very busy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what are your predictions for post-Covid international marketing and recruitment? Well, firstly, I would say that marketing teams have a really key role to play. And this is being discussed a lot. Perhaps it is just by marketing teams in some of the forums that I'm (laughs) in. We would hope hope wider than just Yeah, I hope so. I think, you know, they've got a massive opportunity in terms of promoting and positioning, you know, our, our institutions in the future, particularly around looking at our kind of prospective students and customers getting you know what is it that people want getting you know a bit more of that market insight to help us think about our kind of portfolio of courses and you know who we're attracting really and what they want from us um i think it's also really important i know martin edwards is quite passionate about this uh working with academics to get to really help to provide that credible, authentic narrative for institutions and kind of link up their the research agenda with yes. the kind of bigger picture. And as I mentioned, the work we're trying to do around our brand. Um, and I think what this period has shown us, and I mentioned in terms of students' kind of well-being, sustainability, you know, when we're thinking about our marketing plans and strategies, we need to be authentic. We need to try to be innovative in what we're doing, digitally agile (laughs) and and offer something distinctive. And so that that is a massive challenge, obviously, for us all. Mm. Um, But something I think really easy to say, easy to say, very easy to say. I think particularly I've got great respect for all of my colleagues uh, who have been working tirelessly in a really difficult um, transition, trying to help students 
navigate through this year. And, um, you know, there's been some really impressive work done, I think. Um, and I think we shouldn't le- lose that importance of that, you know, well-being aspect to your university mm-hmm. experience, uh, as well as the kind of ethical side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, the things that are very important in our kind of society, like Black Lives Matter and how we kind mm-hmm. of, you know, think about that and, um, you know, take that on board in terms of um, how organisations are operating and as I've said already, I think online learning and digital transformation are, are here to stay. And but there's kind of lots of in lots of um, things to consider in that. JISC did an interesting report on student digital experience. One of the key findings was around digital in- inequality, and that's something that we need to think about. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, the lack of pedagogical approach and technology enhance learning and teaching so you know still big areas that we still need to be thinking about mm-hmm. but an exciting time I think and and you know all periods of change are hard and hopefully this will help to give us a brighter future yeah sounds Absolutely. hopeful definitely yeah. and exciting mm-hmm. Th- thank you so much Angela I think that's the, the perfect place to finish this episode on but thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure thank yeah. you Angela thank you, Angela thanks guys in the next episode we're joined by Edward Fido chief executive at the London Interdisciplinary School LIS is a brand new university that has taken a truly unique approach to higher education if you like what you're hearing it would mean a lot to us if you'd follow Disrupting the Degree is brought to you by the Brand Education and Carnival Content. Mm -hmm.